0: But when they got melatonin and they trained, and these are older animals, they actually got an effective training. Ta-da! That's pretty cool. They actually got an adaptation, at least a better one. More animals, you may have seen an effect. which is just kind of looking at these values. So this training that wasn't affecting these older animals, maybe because it was too much, Maybe they were in their hormesis curve of stimulus versus adaptation. They were so far that they just couldn't catch up. They couldn't adapt. It may have been hard to know because they didn't do different training doses to test this idea. It may have been that the melatonin reduced the stimulus that was otherwise excessive and made it more optimal so they got a training adaptation. Hmm. Nice, right? So you also had some muscle adaptations. here. They looked at the oxidative capacity. Um, they measure an enzyme called citrate synthase, it's in the mitochondria. And we see here that from sedentary controls and training controls, they didn't get increase in oxidative capacity. They actually got an increase in oxidative capacity just by getting ser- a, a melatonin.
1: What's going on, guys? Welcome back to Muscle Minds with Scott Stevenson. I'm Scott McNally. All of our programming is brought to you by truenutrition.com. You could use our code THINK for additional savings. High-quality, third-party tested supplements from a company that you can trust. Hit me up if you have any questions about any of their flavors, any of their products. Also, go to Strom Sports Nutrition if you're in the UK. Hit them up for great health supplements. They've got some good performance supplements, too. Um, Go to supplementsource.ca if you're in Canada. They support us, so we support them. Lots of good deals over there. Uh, go to Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach. Get Scott's book. You can get that off Amazon or byobvcoach.com. Lots of great, seriously great insight in Scott's book. Uh, and last but not least, thank you to everybody from Patreon. You guys are doing a ton to help support this program, so thank you for that. Scott, we've got a bunch going on here. You've got a presentation for mm-hmm. us. We're going to talk about some melatonin, right? And uh, yes, you whipped together literally like a You've got a whole – this is a legit presentation, basically, is what we've got, we're going to watch here.
0: It's not my best piece of work, I'll tell you that, because I, if I wanted to, do, if I wanted to like, for instance, put this out as one of the talks that I like to give where I get paid, um, just, I, mean, I would look much more deep into this. But I, there's, this is such a cool – it's one of the cool – L-Carnitine, for instance. I did that long article for John Meadows' site, yeah. talked about it here. Like it's crazy complicated, crazy interesting. Melatonin is at least that, if not more. It's like holy shit! No kidding. It's really, really impressively cool. The other interesting thing about this body literature is that it seems as if not everyone's paying attention to what everyone else is doing. So I read. You're going to see this, for instance, in one of the the slides. Um, I think it's yeah, I think it's just the fourth or fifth slide in uh, where there's just like a huge huge aspect of what melatonin does is completely left out of the summary slide even though the summary slide is a relatively recent one and there's for instance uh and i'll show a a version of this plot um a graph showing the decline in melatonin as we age and i'm like okay where that come from because it says you know it's modified from this reference and the reference was a a blog of some some person who's a scientifically inclined person just his personal blog on various health topics. And I'm looking at the picture. It's really nicely done. It looks like he did it himself. I'm like, oh, where's his references for these data? And the the piece of information that seemed like it was the best reference had nothing to do with the decline in melatonin as we age. It looked like from what he'd written. So when I looked, okay, where am I going to find this image? Like, did he get it from somewhere else? I go do a Google image search, and it's used all over the place. It's used in multiple um, reviews. And some of them refer back to him, and some of them refer back to that paper, which seems like it's the one he used to support that information, and that paper doesn't support that information. So it just, like, came up with the I, – I, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole a lot because I've done this before. There, This happens every once in a while. There's just, like, these, these presentations. Sorry if I'm looking up because I've got double screens going on here. I want to see Scott while he's talking to me. It's like why Scott looks to the left. Or yes. to the right, whichever way it is Yeah, for me I'm to actually up, so look at
1: see. Scott, I'm looking over here, believe it or not. Yeah. I'm looking at the camera right now so that I can and engage I got the you same guys issue. at home. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. So I'm looking, at my, I'm looking at a slide and I'm talking to Scott right yeah. into his eyes. So anyway, there's there's a lot that, I, that I'm sure I will continue to, to discover. And some of this information, I have sources, I have references, I put those in whenever I could. If someone wants more of those, I've got them in the notes. I can send someone the slide notes if they want some of the references. Like, gosh, I've, I've downloaded so many articles. I've been doing this over the last month, like banging away for like five-hour blocks. And I've just, I haven't to scratch the surface. So anyway, let's see if we can make this um, slide sharing option work here. All right. Uh, when I see the
1: presentation no. come up, I will go to screen share.
0: And I think I need to stop my screen sharing. I know I need to do it again and pick PowerPoint.
1: Yes. We're, it'll take a yeah. second, guys, but Scott's got this. We did this. We ran through it once, kind of.
0: Okay. It kind of worked. Are you – I'm not seeing what I saw before. Are you seeing anything? I see
1: a black screen. I mean, I, I'm going to go to it. It'll look like this. Okay. <laughs> there, we go. oh, good. there we
0: go. There we uh, go. There we go. The screen blacked out for you. Normally, it does for me. It didn't do it this time. Okay. Okay? It's weirder every time. All right. So, I put a lot of stuff in here. So, hang with me there. I'm trying. I'm going to repeat myself as I like to do during my presentations. I like Just that, good, too. Like some basic ideas, right? Yeah, helps yeah, me So, I'm going to be looking up. Because if I look down, the slides yes. are too small for me to read what, what the hell's in there. So yes. I can't read my own. Just These are fairly dense. So, talk about melatonin in the context of bodybuilding, fat loss, aging, and hormesis. Um, adaptive homeostasis is another. I got to find some other discussions of these terms. I've used hormesis so much, so I'm referring to that again. There's actually arguments in the literature as to whether hormesis is the correct term and adaptive homeostasis is another. It kind of basically means the same thing. And hormesis, for those who maybe haven't heard me talk about this before, is the idea that you have a, a stimulus of some sort. Could be a toxin, it could be something like exercise, which produces, I want to quote unquote, toxins in the form of free radicals. And then we have an adaptation. So if you blunt those, and this is what I think we have the last two podcasts talking about, if you blunt with mega doses of vitamin C, vitamin E, for instance, this free radical production that happens during exercise, you blunt the adaptations that occur. So some amount of, quote unquote, toxicity is the is the chemical nature of the stimulus that's required for the cells to sense there's a need to adapt. And that's kind of the issue with melatonin because it is a phenomenal antioxidant. And we know from studies with, um, and there's one study I was able to find with melatonin supplementation. We'll kind, of, we'll kind of get to that. And there's some nuances here. We know with studies that we use mega doses of vitamin C at a thousand milligrams is equivalent to like 30 oranges, something okay. you'd never yeah. get. Yeah. So, that's a question I get asked a lot. Is can I just can I fruit after I work out? You're probably fine. You know, unless you're somehow managing to, you know, gulp down four gallons of orange juice or something, you're good. But you take three vitamin C pills, you could be very well before you train for very well block, blunting some of those adaptations. So, that's hormesis. All right, I'm going to get into oxidative stress and Feel free to take a screen capture. They can see another you're kind of in the way there a little bit. If you want to move oh, the nice. two of us up, maybe to yeah. the middle right there.
1: I, can, I think what I can do is even like just do one of these for right now. There we
0: go. There you go. Yeah, so oxidative stress is has got a bad rap with good reason. Um, sources are going to be things like pollution, radiation, cigarette smoke, drinking drugs, mental, physical stress. we bring this about. Ischemia, so lack of blood flow. Um, you can have, for instance, reperfusion ischemia. Um, situations in the heart for instance if uh, if a heart is is had some lack of blood flow and then it's restored you'll have an ischemic um, effect where or post ischemic effect we have excess blood flow and that can cause actually free radical damage because you've restored blood flow huh. infections do this and aging is associated with oxidative stress and I probably should have tossed in there obesity we're gonna get to that and exercise so for instance, exercise helps us though adapt to this free radical stress. Um, on the upper right there, I think I can kind of show this with my uh, I've got a I've got a mouse that won't take me to the other. Oh, there it is. There you go. So I'm going to see if I can um, do some drawing. Yep, it takes a little while. I've got to pick a color. I've got a favorite color? It's uh, too purple.
1: Okay, yeah.
0: <laughs> It'll stand out from the red I had there. So, if exercise training um, will increase uh, superoxide dismutase and NADPH oxidase, and this is basically an adaptation that reduces free radical stress. So, that's something that happens when we exercise train. This is from um, a particular review where they, they indicated how this can potentially help with nitric oxide bioavailability. That's a vasodilator, help with endothelial function. Exercise can help with high high um, blood pressure, hypertension. Mm. So exercise training, it interacts with these enzymes that quench the free radicals that produced. And of course, here too um, this training, you know we have the free radicals that trigger the elevation of these enzymes, and it also then triggers the adaptations like muscle growth, increased mitochondrial density, um, increased insulin sensitivity, etc. So during exercise, oh, back to free radicals in general, I'm sort of focused on exercise here, but a free radicals crude free oxygen species or reactive oxygen species. We've got reactive nitrogen species, reactive sulfur species, not going to get into all that, but those are, um, one type of free radical that or different types of free radicals that are sources of oxidative stress and metals can also be an issue. So sometimes I get asked in the context of cereal nation, like you're taking in so much iron it that be causing, uh, some oxidative stress potentially. Yeah. Some cereals are iron fortified and you eat a whole box. You're getting a lot of iron, but I don't do that on every, on a daily basis. But back to exercise and where we're thinking here as, as bodybuilders, um, when we produce, when we have an increased metabolic rate, we produce superoxide radicals. It's sort of a, a, an essential sort of error of oxidative phosphorylation. So when you use... Um, Fuel aerobically, which you don't do so much to fuel the sets, depending on how many reps you're doing, how hard you're training. You certainly do during your recovery periods. You produce these superoxide radicals. And we also produce nitric oxide. That helps with vasodilation. That's what's mentioned over here. And I'm going to move this out of the way so I can see. Um, Those are two, for instance, um, reactive species, oxygen, nitrogen, respectively, that can cause oxidative stress. Here, for instance, the lower right, um, this is another figure that I, I borrowed from this review article showing how inflammation, chronic diseases, and environmental factors—the things that accumulate as we age, yeah. the things that accumulate—you know, for instance, if we're obese, inflammation is associated with obesity very strongly. I added exercise in here. Um, these things will cause oxidative stress, so superoxides, which we get from exercise. And nitrosative stress, nitric oxide, um, this particular review article called this the devil's triangle because both of these two can combine and form this very, very toxic Hmm. um, uh, free radical that we don't want to have that's associated with lots of the negative things associated with oxidative stress. Melatonin is a very, very effective quencher of peroxynitrate. So, drawing melatonin in here, drawing exercise in here. So melatonin, the the question would be, we need this oxidative stress for the adaptation of exercise, but this oxidative stress can be very, very toxic. Hmm. Um, And here in the lower left here, I listed a number of health disorders. This is taken from another review. So there's tons of reviews out here examining all these things. They've listed all the references to substantiate um, the connections between all these diseases or health disorders Neurodegenerative issues, cardiovascular issues, hypertension, ischemia, atherosclerosis, various types of cancer, pulmonary issues, diabetes mellitus, diseases of the eye, of the kidney, rheumatoid arthritis, actually. Um, it's been treated with melatonin, for instance, and some pregnancy related risks. So, oxidative stress is a huge positive etiological factor we're involved with. Um, A number of diseases but it's one of those things that we actually want to have if we want to adapt because exercise Hmm. is a stress right yeah so moving forward here so here's more of this adaptive homeostasis hermesis idea and now we're gonna pull in aging so for instance one of the things that Dante is really big on it's why he he's so he's so um, adamant about trying to help bodybuilders keeping us alive allowing us to actually age um, is that we got to pay attention to what we're doing? You, the, the stresses of bodybuilding, the things you could tackle and do when you're 20, are no longer things you can do when you're 50 or even 40 in most cases. Sure. Um, so, uh, sometimes in in some situations, especially in older animals and some of the studies that have been done, if you have oxidative stress, it actually can be. So strenuous, basically, so, so overwhelming to the system that you don't actually get an activation of radical quenching enzymes. Generally, you see that this adaptation to increase superoxide dismutase, increase these catalase, the various other enzymes that quench free radicals. It doesn't, it doesn't happen as well in older animals. Hmm. So this is a generalized view here of adaptive homeostasis. I've talked about hormesis, hom- hom- basically the same thing. It's kind of a semantics issue. Um, But when you have stress exposure and you look at different species, humans, mice, flies, cells, um, this is a C. elegans. It's a worm that's used for a lot of aging studies. You get an adaptation in young animals that you don't see in older animals. It can basically overwhelm our ability to adapt to these oxidative stresses. It could be too much. You just can't train the way you did when you were 20, when you're 50, let's say. Um, or maybe you can, but you're not going to make the progress. You're not going to be able to handle it nearly as well. Yeah. Um, so here's what I mentioned before. This is another, and here's this reference. Someone wants to look this up. Um, looking at what happens to melatonin in terms of, actually, it's, it's an elevation in the blood during the day. It's only late at night when we turn the lights out that we get this lipid melatonin. And you get a pretty strong release in young people, 5 mm-hmm. to 10-year-olds in this case. And you get when people are 70 and those who are 80, sometimes there's literally no melatonin there. Hmm. So melatonin is very important for quenching these free radicals just in general and also some other things. So we're going to get to that now. So this is, so this is one thing that really kind of points to the possibility that as we age, not having melatonin around, is not a good thing for, for being able to handle these stresses, um, environmental stresses, um, heat and cold, toxins, exercise, emotional and psychological stresses, the way we once could once could when we were younger. So this is, this is a, a feature of um, – there's a, there's a free radical theory of aging that suggests that free radical accumulation is one of the things that leads to the aging process. And we see that our ability to handle those free radicals also goes down. So it's all interwoven. So – melatonin we'll get to some more free radical stuff but i want to introduce that as sort of the main like a centerpiece of what we can talk about here so um melatonin is released mainly from our pineal gland which acts on a um, a timekeeping area in our brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus Um, and that is our zeitgeber it's our timekeeper that, that that basically regulates our circadian rhythm so we have rhythms in cortisol and testosterone all these things and this is largely because of What's going on in our suprachiasmatic nucleus and all of its interactions with the other areas, the hypothalamus, or pituitary, etc. And this is just a, um, this figure kind of shows some of those melatonin-related rhythms that we get. Um, so people can look into this, too. There's a lot there. We're not going to go into the, we don't have time to go into all this stuff, but it's very, very cool stuff. Um, we don't produce a whole lot of this stuff a day as humans. Like 30 micrograms is the value I found from one study. 30 micrograms. So typically you buy hmm. melatonin. It's like one milligram, five ten, milligrams, 10 milligrams. Ten. Yeah.
1: I take 10, ten. up to 10. Yeah. I'll do five to 10. I remember when so, it used to be just yeah. like three was like maybe a couple decades ago, you'd see three, mm-hmm. but it's getting to be yeah. higher and higher, isn't it?
0: Yeah. So this is, this is 30 micrograms. Sorry. I'm trying to write this here. Yes. <laughs> You're doing slow. good.
1: You're doing awesome. Yeah, this is fun to watch. not
0: bad. So, we're talking, you're get, if you take a milligram, you're taking like 33 times what your body would typically be producing. You take 10 milligrams, you're taking 330 times. So it's a, it's a hammer when you're hitting that much melatonin. Um, so it's a pharmacological effect. So, but, and this is where the devil's in the dose, which I probably should have put it as the title of one of the slides, but it's a very, very important concept, is what's going on with aging, you know? Eventually, we're, we're on a downhill slide that eventually leads to death. Like you can't avoid death and taxes. those are the things. So you maybe you have to battle with higher amounts, and that's where the question comes in. So a little more on melatonin basic stuff, but I mentioned the circadian rhythm. There are actually two melatonin receptors. We'll talk a little bit more about those in the future. There's genetics here, variations in these receptors. It has an impact on other hormones and training the circadian rhythm. and of course, it's an antioxidant. Um, and I mentioned some of these things and acts as an anti-inflammatory as well because it upregulates things like cyclooxygenase, for instance, Um, or sorry, inhibits those, so uh, reduces their expression. So let me move myself out of the way here. Here's some other uh, cool stuff on mechanisms of melatonin. Here's another recent um, review, and they've branched this into binding with membrane receptors. their nuclear receptors as well. (laughs) Other intracellular proteins. You can read about all these this massive amount of impacts on various cells, hmm. and that's. And then we have the antioxidant effects. They mention here um, two metabolites, and then another uh, molecule that's involved with melatonin synthesis. These things act as antioxidants. So it's not just melatonin; it's its metabolites that have various antioxidant quenching activities, and it also upregulates antioxidant enzymes. So this is from an older review from 2002. And here we're talking about things that aren't even mentioned in this more recently, like stimulating antioxidant enzymes, um, detoxified oxygen uh, species. Stabilizing cellular membranes, increasing the efficiency of oxidative phosphorylation because we're not losing, we're quenching those free radicals. you are not having the damage that can happen to the mitochondria over time. So there's um, inhibiting pro-oxidative enzymes. So it has a number of (laughs) intracellular effects. It basically Acts as a direct, uh, blunter, a direct antioxidant of free radicals in various forms of those. Yeah. Some amazing reviews have gone into this, as well as upregulates the enzymes involved with quenching those, and has an impact on other enzymes that are involved with other aspects of the inflammatory response. So it's just like, I mean, it's a hammer that you throw it in and it explodes into a million hammers, you know, and just mm-hmm. goes everywhere, and just does its does its duty. So it's very very cool. So. As I mentioned before obesity is also associated with oxidative stress this is a whole topic unto itself so I'm, I'm trying to combine things and, and keep it simple so we can connect some of these dots so people have some idea what they're involved with um, so this is another figure looking at obesity some of the things that are involved with obesity mitochondrial dys- oops sorry you do that it's the wrong way um, uh, excess Leptin um, or insensitivity to leptin, hyperlipidemia, inflammation, unhealthy diet. These are all things that happen with BC that, uh, that, are, that trigger more oxidative stress and then potentially feedback. That's why I added this arrow going up to create more obesity. So if we blunt oxidative stress, this can actually diminish some lipogenic processes. And we're gonna see this in the animal studies a few slides forward. Pretty impressive stuff. I've just got some review tables and I think I shared this with you before, Scott. It's just crazy how effective high, high, high doses of melatonin seem to be and the question is, is this too much? Do we need to do this much? Um, Seems to be safe, but do we need this much? So we'll get to that in just a second. So obesity is connected with oxidative stress. Aging is connected with oxidative stress. see if I can go forward here again. Hold on. There we go. Um, And there's similarities that have been Noted, I'm not going to go through all these things, between aging and obesity. Common cellular mechanisms, first one they list is oxidative damage. So people can screen capture this that they like, and they can look at number of, a, of a, a diseases, and here are some of the mediators. Um, some of these you'll see in, um, list in both the context of aging and obesity. They're in common, and we have the same sort of diseases. So there's some overlap. We've basically almost got a Venn diagram. I think that's why they did this figure this way between obesity and aging so that gives us an idea of why melatonin is a fat loss agent which is what dante was talking about in that that um post that he's taking out so don't don't come at dante i'm just mentioning him because i'm giving credit to him having brought this topic to my attention um to people that said hey what do you think about this someone had screen captured the uh the um his post so i got it that way he didn't send it to me so sorry dante (laughs) You did the right thing. Don't bother Dante with this. This is hopefully information that can help substantiate. I think what Dante was saying is that um, this is do your own thing on this, but there's a lot of really cool information, but the devil's in the dose, and you have to make – this is not medical advice, of course. Of course. So never medical advice, just information, pure academic. So let's talk about some cool stuff here. All All right. right. So cool stuff. Here's cool stuff. Young individuals, 19, like one group was age 20 on average, the other 19, no difference. So 19 to 20 year old resistance training males. And they gave them 100 milligrams of, of uh, melatonin a night Ooh. for four weeks. Wow. Yeah. Big-ass dose, right?
1: I haven't been able to work and, up that high.
0: Yeah, that's a lot. I mean, people feel groggy. I haven't done this before. People I, I I, I think I've felt groggy and I've had plenty of clients that they felt groggy from like 10 milligram doses.
1: I've gotten to 20. Um, that's, that's the highest I've yeah. gone so
0: far, but yeah. Do you get groggy from that or?
1: Yeah. It's for me, it's in timing. I'll use the instant release and I make sure that I get it in mm-hmm. me a little bit before I actually plan to be asleep. If I, if I wait to that very last minute and I take it, then I'll wake up definitely mm-hmm. feeling groggy.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's the, the time release. I mean, Melatonin is metabolized really rapidly, so you take large doses and they're, if they're big enough, from what I've seen, like this, this dose is going to be, because it's so large, it takes a while to metabolize that.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. The nice
0: thing about melatonin, that's interesting, and we'll get to this at the end too, is that because it has all these free radical toxicity quenching effects, Yeah, um, it may actually be uh, pacifying and helping the liver with its own metabolism. I don't know the pathways huh. of detoxification of the liver, but the issues with, with liver stress from various drugs is oftentimes free radical based Um, that's why you see things like n-acetylcysteine and alpha lipoic acid and herbs that are in live 52 those all are herbs that turn on the free radical quenching enzymatic machinery of the liver so they they combat free radical stress oxidative stress in the liver and that's how they help with liver um, liver toxicity from drugs So melatonin is going to help with liver toxicity that might come from metabolizing massive doses of that. I haven't seen that study directly, but there's some really cool literature on melatonin working to help minimize the toxicity and actually help the effectiveness of various drugs. Um, And I'll give you guys a reference and list those a little bit. So here's the study. So this is the study that shows an interesting effect. Um, That is the one that is the concern that I get is if you take high doses And this is definitely a mega dose. 100 milligrams is a lot more, as we mentioned before, a lot more than what your body's normally producing. (laughs) A lot more than, right. So, and melatonin is found in in the plant world, the animal world, but you're you're not, this is a pharmacological dose. for
1: sure. Sure, Sure. So
0: what they found here, they measured glutathione peroxidase, glutathione reductase, and the ratio of those two. And they had a placebo group and they had a melatonin group. So we got a control group here. And what you find if you look at the the height of these white bars in terms of the impact here on these, um, is that basically we saw an adaptation in these enzymes in the placebo group that was diminished in the melatonin group. Hmm. Things were lower. So what we saw is that, as you would expect, the free radical stress was less, the cellular adaptation was less, Okay. Now, if we extend that idea to what these other studies have shown, we talked about in the previous podcast, with limiting exercise adaptations, this this enzymatic data related to the free radical enzymes and how they're upregulated, being lessened by melatonin would suggest that other adaptations to exercise might also be lessened. Something to consider. And one of those things we talked about in the context of this is using NSAIDs and, and antioxidants to reduce muscle damage. In this study, um, they measured before and after, and they didn't do this with a controlled damaging bout. They just took baseline measurements and then took measurements afterwards. And they looked at creatine kinase and lactate dehydrogenase. So these are two enzymes that can be leaked from damaged muscle tissue, so CPK or creatine kinase. That elevation is a standard marker that's been used for years to examine the extent of muscle damage and an effect of whatever drug or whatever protocol or what have you is. And what we saw here, was that um in the placebo group they had no change so they were training the entire time so this wasn't an increase We wouldn't expect a pre to post increase because they're just doing their typical training right to standardize that but what we saw here in the melatonin group is that their cpk and their lactate dehydrogenase went down significantly it's not a huge didn't drop into the bucket um, i don't know how high this could have gone but there was a reduction, so this was suggested. Muscle damage was attenuated by the melatonin, hmm. right? So it's doing what we would expect a mega dose of a free of an antioxidant to do. Yeah. Now whether and that so that blunts the stimulus of training. Again, go back to the other podcast. I didn't throw this in here, but I, I could have. We have this. The question of whether that makes a difference is a matter of where you are on your dose response in terms of training and adaptation. If you're someone who tends to train too much, this could be a good thing because you're reducing the damage that is otherwise excessive and it moves you back to an optimal level of training dose that you want, right? Yeah. So that could be okay. If you're someone who's not who's who had a good training dose and you're and for whatever reason you have a particularly strong response to this kind of a high dose of melatonin and you you could be blunting the training stimulus that you're getting and getting suboptimal adaptations to your training. Not what you want. So we know it's it's this is the one piece of information, but this is in young folks, okay? Yeah. Okay. So it gets more interesting. We also have an interesting effect of reduction in total cholesterol. So we have a health effect here. Great. Um, so this is a nice thing, right? Yeah. So that's good. So the idea here of a trade off, like we've got, and I get this sometimes. People are like, "Yeah, I'm taking all these health these health supplements that have free radical quenching and anti inflammatory actions, but I don't want to block my gains." Yeah. But I'm 46 years old and I've got bad cholesterol, I got a family history of heart disease and blah blah blah. It's like, well, you know, kind of if you're losing 5% of your gains but you're getting a great health effect from your blood markers, yeah. maybe worth it. Maybe the trade-off that you're willing to take. Absolutely. So so this is a this points to this kind of trade-off issue which is hopefully the it's a theme that I'm trying to develop here. So this is some really cool. So now we have aging rodents. That's about all I can really find with humans or maybe some more stuff out there. But this is a really kind of cool study. So they did some treadmill training in rodents. And the nice thing about rodents is, you know, they're cheap. You can get lots of them. So you can have huge training groups. And they're very, very similar in their adaptation. So you can get powerful statistical effects Mm -hmm. um, because they all tend to adapt the same as long as they're getting the same kind of stimulus. Or you've got them in groups where they're getting the same supplement what happened in this case so they had in this group they had this study sorry um middle age or 12 months of age These are Wistar rats they live to be like two and a half three years old something like that maybe two years old it's 1.7 kind of depends on the lab and and their other conditions but um they're middle age maybe like 40 year old 40 year olds kind of say something like that they're maybe halfway through um and they had them training for 16 weeks or four months that's equivalent to like 10 or 12 years of their life
1: yeah. Okay.
0: Right? So so this is you can kinda of think of this as, this is somewhat of the leap. A man is not a rat. That's important to know. Um, there are lots of differences between men and mice and sometimes men and, and, and rats too. Some of these animals just won't run. You presume that this is the case because sometimes you put rats on treadmills and some of them just won't run.
1: Yeah. So you're only getting <laughs> the ones that'll run,
0: right? Um, so there's you know, there's some issues there, but um, but this was this would be like using a supplement, let's say, from age of thirty five to forty five. Okay. Or forty to fifty. And so what they, they made, they made various measurements. I'm just sort of kind of showing some of the more important ones. But they were doing cardiovascular treadmill training with them. They started off at, um, at the beginning of the study, and they just supplemented with melatonin for a period, so got them going with it, and then they added um, physical training. So the last eight weeks they trained, the first eight, eight weeks either took melatonin or they didn't. So they had groups that took nothing and didn't train. They had groups that took nothing and trained. They had groups that um, – took melatonin at the end and trained, and the groups that just took melatonin didn't train. So four groups here. You look on the lower left, you can see um, sedentary control, training control, so eight weeks of training again, sedentary melatonin, so they took melatonin for the entire 14 or 16 weeks, sorry, and training melatonin. So these are the four groups. So one of the things they did is they looked at and, of course, you presume they all start off the same. They may have uh, presented this data. But this is – they did a graded exercise test. So these tests, people have probably done those. They do it for in cardiac rehab situations. They do, the, do a stress test on your heart. And the more fit you are, the higher the speed at the end of your graded exercise test. So what they found in their in their uh, sedentary controls, this is the speed they're at the, at the very end. So this is sort of basically this, these bars state how um, how fit they were. And again, maybe a little bit of it was a statistical effect of training. Um, but it, there's no difference here between training and sedentary. So, this period of training, this eight weeks, so these four, five, six years of training in the equivalent human years, didn't make them more fit in these older animals. Yeah. So, they didn't get any fitter, right? Not good. The, this was sedentary melatonin. Eh, wouldn't expect too much there. But when they got melatonin, and they trained. And these are older animals, they actually got an effective training. Ta-da! That's pretty cool. They actually got an adaptation, at least a better one. More animals, they may have seen an effect. We're just kind of looking at these values. So this training that wasn't affecting these older animals, maybe because it was too much. Maybe they were in their hormesis curve of stimulus versus adaptation. They were so far that they just couldn't catch up. They couldn't adapt. It may have been, hard to know because they didn't do different training doses to test this idea. It may have been that the melatonin reduced the stimulus that was otherwise excessive and made it more optimal so they got a training adaptation. Hmm. Nice, right? So you also had some muscle adaptations. here. They looked at the oxidative capacity. Um, They measure an enzyme called citrate synthase. It's in the mitochondria. And we see here that from sedentary controls and training controls, they didn't get increase in oxidative capacity. They actually got an increase in oxidative capacity just by getting ser- a, a melatonin. So they were blunting what was perhaps excessive free radical production and keeping the, um, the mitochondria healthy. So that at the very end, like the, this mitochondria, they, don't, I don't think they had four measurements, but the mitochondria um, mitochondria density was here just by doing nothing. And it was here by taking melatonin. And when they trained, we got the training effect you'd, you'd expect. Yeah. You train, do aerobic training, get more mitochondria. Pretty cool, right? Remember these are older animals, so we've got, a, we've got a different deal. We seem to have a blunting in the human study and that was resistance training. Um, wasn't directly studied in the way you would like to see, but it was a blunting. And we also saw here in muscle in glycogen content, the same kind of pattern. In these back to the rodents here again, Um, we saw an elevation of glycogen. This is what you see. You store more glycogen when you're continually depleting the glycogen stores with the exercise that the rodents do. Right?
1: Yeah.
0: And here is just a measure of body weight. The sedentary animals gain body weight. um, So this is not a good thing. We we get there's creeping obesity is the human equivalent of this. Um, We see here that the sedentary, there was actually an effect here for the sedentary melatonin. Um, consuming animals, and when they trained using melatonin, they, their body weight went down. Hmm. That's what you see. You go out and you start running a bunch, you drop body weight. That's what people want to do. They want to see the scale move. Yeah. So the training effect that you would expect to see happened um, when they gave them melatonin. Hmm. Um, I, and this was a one milligram per kilogram per night. That's a lot. for In a human dose, that would be about 16, something like that milligrams per night okay for a for if, if you take the um for a big human right for a hundred kilogram bodybuilder so one milligram per kilogram would be a hundred milligrams and a hundred kilogram person rat the rat to human conversion is about 16 percent. it's like okay. 16.2 or something like that so this was a mega dose but these were older animals and they were going down they were not doing good they're getting fatter and they're unable to adapt to this training regimen Unless they were given, at least in certain aspects of the training, unless they were given the melatonin, because as we saw in this figure back here, when you get older, we lose our ability to exhibit adaptive homeostasis or hormesis. It goes yeah. down. You just can't adapt to the shit anymore. So, this is what is so cool about this. You go back to where we were. Keep moving forward. You is this making sense, Scott? Yeah, yeah. This is great, man. Okay, yeah. This is pretty cool. I th- this is great stuff. Sorry about the typos or whatever. That's so all right. Here's another one. Okay, more bodybuilders gonna love this shit. Okay, so here we have Wistar rats again. Um. All right. So they clipped them. They castrated them. Mm. Took out their took out their gonads. A gonadectomy, and um, they had just six in a group. You can do that with animals, and they had four groups here. In, in this case, they had a sham castration. They always do that. That means they went in and they did the entire operation except for removing the gonads, um, just to make sure that the sh- that cutting in and the trauma, and what have you, didn't create some effect, right? Okay. So, um, so this is basically our pur- pure control. Then they had the animals that were castrated, and then they had animals where they replaced replaced the missing testosterone hmm. by putting them on TRT, basically, and then they had melatonin injected they gave him six milligrams per kilogram per day so this is this is a big ass dose right this is a mega dose so this would be 600 milligrams this would be about 100 milligrams um, per day for a human so people are talking about using like 60 80 100 milligrams this is a big ass dose you take that six milligrams per kilogram spend that out convert it from rat to human that's what you get something like 100 milligrams per day so here are the final body weights, um, and they looked at solely, so this is muscle weight. So here's what happened. The shan- This is the pure control. Body weight was 186. Their testosterone-injected animals didn't um, lose too much body weight. The castrate muscles actually gained in body weight. But that's probably not a good thing because when we look at the weight of the muscle, in particular fiber diameters, what happens here is you get fat infiltration in these muscles in this kind of cases. So let's just look at the fiber diameters. Here's the size of the muscle fibers in the animals that were intact. And here's what happened when they took um, the gonads out. So this is the effect of hypogonadism. They lost about 30% of their muscle fibers. Okay. Fiber size, diameters in this case. And when they gave them testosterone, 47 is the same as 50. And when they gave them melatonin, 46 is the same as 47. Melatonin was as as effective in reducing the loss of fiber size. Now, this is an atrophy effect. This isn't a gain. We're not saying that melatonin is as effective as testosterone for putting on muscle mass. In this particular study at these doses with these animals, um, it was effective in reducing the atrophy that occurred when testosterone was removed and that was preserved when testosterone was replaced. So, melatonin was equivalent to testosterone in terms of um, preventing the hypogonadism-associated muscle atrophy. Hmm. That's cool shit, I think. Um, so, the soleus weights were about the same. In fact, the, num- the number here for soleus weight in the melatonin is exactly the same, which just happenstance, as in the sham castrated, and the fiber sizes were just about the same size. So, the muscle mass was preserved with melatonin, and what What happens here, and we've seen this in the case of curcumin, when you look at curcumin's body of literature, it seems to have a pretty reliable effect on preventing muscle atrophy. Hmm. We have disuse atrophy, denervation atrophy, those sorts of things. So free radical stress is something that is involved with breakdown. So it has an anti-catabolic effect. So if you can prevent that, yeah.
1: Okay, and I yeah. and I
0: forget I have to go look I added this study found this one like probably three weeks ago and I created a slide a long while ago I can't remember how long the um, the study was um, so but it was long you, enough obviously to get a substantial loss in muscle size yes
1: so in certain circumstances of course certain cir- circumstances uh, melatonin could potentially uh, reduce your muscle gains but in certain circumstances melatonin can help you preserve muscle is what you're telling me yes that's, That's okay. what the
0: evidence is kind of suggesting. Yeah. Huh. So when you've got someone who's, and here's where, you know, you got to kind of, there's the, the data isn't there to tease out this idea. But if you've got a situation where you've got too much free radical stress, and yeah. you're trying to adapt the training, like in the case with these rats, yeah. um, then it could help with your training adaptation. This wasn't muscle mass, but it could help with your training adaptation. You've got a situation where you're losing muscle mass, and you've got too much free radical stress. Or too much inflammation. Yeah. Melatonin is helping with inflammation and free radical stress. <coughs> it can help prevent the loss. So hmm. it could be a situation where someone's, you know, if they just want to bang away and maintain your muscle mass, yeah. you might be able to use melatonin as an as an adjunct, as a supplement, um, to prevent the excessive free radical stress and inflammation you would be otherwise causing um, and still train train with young guys and hold on to your muscle size, let's say. Yeah, because you're you're blunting that that negatively the negative, aso- negative excess for your radical stress.
1: I wonder, would this be something that you could employ on just like a say a specific body part? Say say you know, I'm thinking I'm thinking of the guys who. Are, I have guys that I work with who are addicted to training legs. And when you look at their physiques, like like a guy who's newer, you know, been in the mm-hmm. gym for four or five years, and they've got incredible legs, but they need to bring their upper bodies up, yet they have a real difficult time reducing the amount of volume that goes to their legs. And so a lot of what we've no. tried to do is back off that leg training, give them more recoverability, you know, to their upper mm-hmm. body. Uh, I right. wonder, I wonder if you couldn't, if you didn't want to do that, and I don't think it would be the best route, but would it be possible to just, like, say, I take melatonin Friday nights after I train, you know, I train legs on Friday, I just take melatonin on Fridays?
0: Friday after the training?
1: or Yeah, uh, yeah fr- Friday yeah. after the training. I wonder if you could just do it in a very, you know, um, you know surgical way versus right. having to have it in your system constantly kind of thing.
0: I think in terms of the – I get what you're getting at, I think. In terms of, of being able to – help with the, your overall recovery resources. Yeah. Um, if it helps with your sleep, it's going to help with that.
1: That's true. But that's I, true.
0: I think the thing with leg training, I think a lot of that that issue where like if you back off the leg training, you got more for other things. Right. It has to do with the nervous system to um, some degree. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You're right. You're but, right.
0: That's a large part. But, but it's not all of it. I mean, it might. The thing um, as another way to look at this is, you know, you want to make sure you don't lose any size in your legs, but I, but you can hold on to size so easily. So you wouldn't need it necessarily for that. Per se, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's the thing with with all of these supplements that that are having this effect. There's this timing issue, so it's a like this is all sort of undiscovered territory as far as far as I know. But there's this timing issue where if you train and you and you let the stress occur during the training, it sets in motion the adaptive processes from a molecular perspective, hmm. and then you want to have use the health supplements that have anti-inflammatory actions. They're going to potentially impact your your um, cholesterol levels or what have you, you use those away from your training. So they're ideally not Absolutely. in your bloodstream. The, the blunt things like an acetylcysteine has a really long half life. Vitamin C has a really long half life. It can be an issue. Um, but you try to use those on non-training days or after the training at some point so as a timing possibility. Right. So right. you're, you're getting the stress of training, but you're not blunting it and you're getting the, the free radical quenching during the rest of the hours where it can have the health benefits. Yeah. Um, but it might, you know, that's the thing. I don't know. Like, what part of that, like, of that recovery ability is literally the free radical stress that some people may be just accumulating over time because they've gotten older, hmm. you know, or, or just as accumulating because of the, the chronic stress. So that's a very good possibility that what you're, what you're getting is that you may be able to take melatonin at that time and have a sense, aside from any effects on your sleep, right. I mean, we talked about, you know, melatonin, healthy sleep, but, um. There's plenty of talks on that. Like you can find yeah. plenty information there. Yeah, I'm not going to go to that necessarily. But uh, it might might be something that could help with your overall recovery source, especially if you're just in, in general pushing too hard and you have a systemic inflammatory issue that is is underlying. It's sort of a baseline to your ability to move forward and that's in excess. Right. That if you could just dampen. Yeah. And that's where I would
1: see it as being more so. I just started like, the you know, the bro in me was like, can you just surgically put it in, you know, at points where, you know, like, oh, you know, I'm really going to overtrain legs just because I like to overtrain legs because I like to spend three hours in the gym. I take melatonin that night to kind of offset that training effect.
0: I think that's absolutely a possibility. I wouldn't rule that out whatsoever. In fact, I think that sounds like a nice way to, <laughs> way to potentially do it. Because there's some more information about about how t- about taking melatonin, whether it throws off your own circadian rhythm, your own melatonin production. It doesn't yeah. seem to do that. So you can take it, it's kind of like what we suspect is the case with, with growth hormone. It has this other negative side effects, but it's a, a very pulsatile, has a very pulsatile release. Yeah. So if you're using growth hormone for a long time, it's used to high fluctuations in growth hormone. So the system is ready to kind of pick up whenever growth hormone levels go down or what it has its normal stimulus for growth hormone release, yeah. whatever it might be, being asleep or hypoglycemia or what have you. Um, melatonin seems to pick up just just fine after that. So I think for someone who's running around, let's say that they're, they're doing a seafood diet and they've got a lot of um, inflammation because of their diet, maybe their training is excessive anyway, and they've got some baseline free radical stress, um, that's 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 part of maybe a neurological issue, which is when those two are definitely intertwined. I think, um, and if those things are intertwined, and melatonin helps you sleep better. It doesn't make you groggy during the day. Absolutely, because the thing is, you think about it. Like when we're when we're exercising, even when we're moving around during the day, if you're just even if you're just kind of sitting and you're awake, you're not getting optimal recovery. Yeah. Recovery is by far best. This is why sleep is so important. So if you're if you're thinking about I mean, I can't put numbers on this, but let's say, you know, you train for two hours of the day and then you're awake for another twelve hours out of the day, and then you've got ten hours when you're in bed or something like that. And in those other twelve hours, um, you might get one quarter of your recovery, and the other ten hours you get three quarters of recovery. Maybe it's a third and two thirds. Or maybe it's just a half and, and one half. Maybe you get half of it during the but even, even then, if you can enhance your recovery by reducing – by sleeping better and reducing um, pre-radical stress during the, those periods of time, I could totally see that working, right? Hmm. Yeah, it's so, just like the
1: first thing that came to my head. But anyway, this is yeah. cool, man. Where are we going next yeah. with this?
0: Let's see. Um, ah, now we're going on to fat loss. So let's see. like ah. everything there to cover all this? Okay, we covered that. Yep. So – I just, this is from a, a review, Tan and i a writer in Tan, they've done a bunch of cool stuff. These guys are in Texas, I believe. Um, they've done so much work in this area. Um, so they, oh, that's wrong. mix that. I saw someone say that once and that's not correct. We're going to cross that out. All right. That's not true. Um, so they've done fat loss. I thought I erased that actually, but maybe I didn't. Uh, Fat loss studies, a number of them, this is what is in uh, um, weight loss and various aspects of adiposity. It's been done a number of studies with hamsters here, you'll see, and lots and lots of rodents and rabbits and even a goat. Hmm. Um, and What we generally see here, and I'm not going to go through all these studies, is that when they give doses that are like this one milligram per kilogram dose on a daily basis, about 15 milligrams, like I said before, um, you get... A really, really consistent reduction in weight, a really, really consistent reduction in body fat, various aspects of, of adiposity, reducing visceral fat, liver fat, intra abdominal fat depots. Um, basically, it's almost universal. Hmm. Um, and uh, it even works when leptin signaling is, is absent. So they've got animals uh, that OB, OB and DBDB um, animals that are lacking in leptin or lacking the leptin receptor. This seems to show this effect as well. Um, as far as humans, I'm just going to th- throw in this anecdote. There is a um, there's one study It's kind of cool. They did a kind of a retroactive or a prospective study actually with um, women of various body weights. I think they just used BMI to uh, categorize obesity, so they weren't measuring body fat, but they just asked them what substance they've been taking, and they kind of categorized them and it was a pretty strong effect. They looked at uh, women who were who re- self-reported high doses. Think of how they mentioned how they how they um, categorized it of melatonin hmm. um, in the obese category had about a five, I think a five kilogram or maybe a five pound fat body weight loss hmm. over the course of um, like this ten year period. So those who are using melatonin, that could be just a surrogate marker for women who are taking care of their sleep hygiene. They might have been yeah. just more conscientious, a m- number of other things. But that's purely anecdotal evidence. So um, they may have been just simply on the right track. And being on the right track meant they're also using melatonin. That makes sense. Right? So Yeah. So more on uh, melatonin and brown fat, This is what the kind of cool part. So brown fat are, is a type of adipose. Um, that is high in mitochondria it's highly vascularized so it has a brown visual appearance and these mitochondria are loaded with uncoupling proteins which means that these fat cells are sources of energy dissipation they're highly highly thermogenic hmm. so they will oxidize fat they've got um, they're innervated by the sympathetic nervous system and when you have like for instance, shivering your sympathetic nervous system is going crazy and in individuals who Are not obese for the most part that's the interesting thing about it one of the things that's connected with the unfortunate genetic card of being obese is that you are unlikely to have a whole lot of brown fat but this may not apply to a lot of the listeners because a lot of them probably aren't obese or maybe they were but they've gotten this out of it but if you're obese in general you're gonna have less likely possibility of having this brown fat is brown fat is involved with fat loss and something like first I've talked about Sinifrin maybe acting on brown fat To increase thermogenesis, caloric expenditure, creating that caloric deficit that you need for for body fat loss. So, here's a number of studies looking at the impact of melatonin on brown adipose tissue mass. Um, And it's going up, 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 up. Pretty much it goes up in every uh, study where they've given. Um, melatonin in these large dose fairly large doses so here's like 3.1 mil- this is enhanced for 3.1 milligrams per week That's still a ton 50 milligrams um so that's a that's like five milligrams a week still a huge dose um but some smaller doses too so this is interesting 25 micrograms per day um that's a smaller amount. I'm not sure what the endogenous production of, a, of the Hungarian hamster is, um, but that's more aligned with what humans and rats are producing. So we're seeing with these giant doses, as well as smaller doses, more brown adipose tissue. And the only exception i noted noted here was, was cold acclimatized rats. And in cold acclimatization, one of the adaptations you see, especially in animals, and we thought this didn't happen in humans, but it does seem... It's not going to be a matter of, of survival necessarily because humans have a behavioral response or adaptation that we put clothes on because we're hairless. But you don't see – at least I haven't seen rats. Maybe you have up in Michigan. Maybe they're getting so smart that they go and they, they find rat clothes and they put on rat clothes to stay warm during the winter. But they have to acclimatize otherwise. And one of the acclimatization strategies is to increase brown adipose tissue so they can have a source of, of warmth, of thermogenesis. So in the animals that were already uh, colloid acclimatized, they probably they may have maxed out. There could have been a ceiling effect in terms of their, their brown adipose tissue. So that was the only exception that I think was in the literature. Um, yeah, cold acclimatized animals here, where they didn't see a significant increase in brown adipose activity. So otherwise, it's increasing brown adipose, which is good for fat. So we see fat loss. We see potentially brown adipose being one of the um, main mechanisms here. So... Um, some other thoughts just to kind of toss out, um, uh, so melatonin may have a thermogenic effect at night, a little bit of data suggesting that, but it reduces core body temperature via peripheral vasodilation. So people got confused. Apparently there's some mixed evidence in the literature because they're trying to figure out like what's going on here. Um, you get, you have a cool, cooler body temperature because when you vasodilate like you do in the heat. Um you release more heat from the body. So the body gets cooler, but melatonin also having a thermogenic effect probably through these um the melanotan two receptor in the hypothalamus. This is where brown adipose tissue is regulated. So melatonin could be helping with fat loss, thermogenesis during your sleep, but also helping to keep you cool, which generally makes for better sleep, all in all. Um it generally include, it improves glycemic control. So a number of studies have, have shown that melatonin helps with insulin sensitivity. But at least from one study, this is something that people want to know. There's about 30% of, of Europeans from the picker said We don't know about people with um, from other continents with other ethnicities or racial origins, so to speak, um, what the prevalence of this particular allele is for the melatonin-2 receptor. But it may predispose those individuals to having poor glycemic control by having lower insulin release. So yeah. when um, when taking melatonin and elevating glucose, so they get something about melatonin seems to impair the insulin release. And that means your glucose is higher. Doesn't mean your insulin sensitivity is necessarily um, poor. It's just you have inadequate insulin release. So that's important to differentiate. And having more glucose around means more high glycosylated hemoglobin and. The constellation in products which you don't want, which are part of the problem with, for instance, having diabetes and elevated glucose, that you get some issues there. So that's one study that's worth. It. That's basically this is about as evil as it gets when it comes to high dosing of, L- of melatonin and potentially having some issues. Hmm. Some people might find, for instance, that they, if they're especially if they're of European ancestry, that they have elevated blood glucose in the morning if they if they measure that. They could probably go and. Get their um, test themselves for this particular uh, allele for the um, uh, the melatonin two receptor uh, or the one, it's also called the one B where if people name things and they have two different nomenclatures and they just sort of have to say both as the literature mm. moves on. Okay. So so the issue would be if you're eating a lot late night and taking melatonin, you could have adverse consequences in glycemic control. Huh. So obviously, melatonin users. People are eating at night, shift workers, people who are who are um, having to eat strange hours, or just people who do. So that's just one thing to consider um, that could be an issue. But who knows? In the context of everything else, who knows what the end end all be all that could be like one of the one of the cons amongst the, a number of pros, whereby melatonin could be yeah. helping someone who's overweight and older, et cetera. So
1: yeah,
0: sounds like there could be a lot of good benefits here. Yeah, so um, normal production is on the order of thirty micrograms per day. I mentioned that before. Right. Here is the kind of the cool stuff in humans: a half a milligram a night for two weeks. They tested them the very next day after um, uh, discontinuing the melatonin, and there was no change in the in the rhythm um, or the melatonin release during that night. There was another kind of cool. They had a case study in that particular subject study with the blind subject, and they gave him fifty milligrams. Um, for two for 37 days so this yeah. is like a thousand times normal dose and then they test him the day after they discontinued that so more than a month at 50 milligrams and he basically had he had sort of an, an aberrant uh, melatonin elevation during the night but it was just exactly the same it followed the same pattern the very next day so um and we know that two to four milligram doses are about 15 percent bioavailable so there's some absorption issue potentially first passing issue So this is basic melatonin um uh We've got some rodent studies I said using typically this one one milligrams per kilogram, um, but you only need about one microgram per kilogram to entrain activity in some rodent studies. Hmm. So they just use this as one of these things you do when they're testing toxins or whatever. We're just going to give a boatload so we can get an effect. But we don't know if it's a physiological effect. It becomes basically automatically a pharmacological effect when you're giving so much. And we saw, for instance, back here at some of these studies giving microgram doses in hamsters still having an effect on um, fat, brown adipose tissue mass. So the question is, do we need one milligram per kilogram in these rodent studies when one microgram will do it? You still get super physiological levels, and that will cause an entrainment in some animals. You can basically set set up their um, activity. In rodents, it's worth noting that rodents – produce melatonin at night but they're nocturnal so they're more active during the night we produce melatonin at night but we typically are sleeping at night the other thing again man is not a rat is they've done studies where in animals that they've just taken out the pineal gland or there are animals that have genetic mutations that they've bred in or they've knocked out they have no melatonin Hmm. and it has literally minimal effect on their sleep-wake cycle they still behave just the same in terms of their activity and those sorts of things without melatonin um but rodents are super hardy. They have redundancies in their systems, and and they just you know you can you can chop off a leg and they just move just as much, right? Yeah. So it doesn't mean it has no no role whatsoever, but um, it's hard to distinguish necessarily. So uh, as far as long term effects in humans of, of uh, um, super physiological doses, there are some kind of mixed mixed data that's sort of weak on affecting growth hormone, elevating it, reducing luteinizing hormones. Um, there's one study that I found, and I can provide the uh, links for anyone who wants them or the references. 240 milligrams <laughs> elevated prolactin, but it didn't have effect on growth hormone, luteinizing hormone, thyroid stimulating hormone, or cortisol. So, a little bit of prolactin elevation from that, that monster dose. That's like, that's probably like half a bottle if you're taking 10 milligram <laughs> pills, right? That'd be 24. If you buy a bottle of 50, you're taking half a bottle basically to get that. Um, So that was just one acute effect. Long-term, don't know. Um, So some other cool shit. It can reduce drug toxicity, increase effectiveness of some drugs. So drugs of chemotherapy, listed some there. Some NSAIDs, that makes sense, given we said. Um, Antihistamines um, seems to help with side effects with erythropoietin and um, iron, which can be very pro-oxidative. Helps hmm. with seizure, some seizure medications, helps with morphine, actually, and um, can help with l cysteine that can be given for people, given to people with porphyria. Hmm. They have a, an issue with um, hemoglobin synthesis. And l cysteine can actually be pro-oxidative when it's given in super high doses. it the give, it'll give uh, melatonin, it kind of comes to the rescue of the, hmm. that issue and lets l cysteine do its job in helping individuals with that problem. So wh- what are we left with? There's a spectrum. It's not like if this, then that black and white, there's shades of gray, right? And no reference to the book. Um, the question is, who are you? Are you young? Are you old? Are you, do you have tons of oxidative stress? Do you have health issues? Are you trying to push the bodybuilding thing? Where are you at? And what is this going to do in terms of moving you along your, your dose adaptation curve in adaptive homeostasis or hormesis, whichever term you want to use. So we've got, for instance, one end of the spectrum, cancer cells, ton- oxidative issues. Um, you can use melatonin and, and high levels of antioxidants are used in this case. Um, we've got drug use side effects here. In this case, heck, fight fire with fire. You got immortal cells that are taking over your body and threaten to kill you. Go after those some bitches, right? Somewhere in between, comma, we've got aging, reducing melatonin levels. And obesity and aging are both associated with free radical stress. So we can mediate this perhaps with sort of a replacement dose, right? So replace, just like TRT would, what your doses were when you're younger and they decline substantially over the course of age. Maybe that will allow you to train more like you did and get, and get the growth or at least recovery as you would have. Um, and then if you're a young person and you're going for broke and you seem to handle training pretty well, just like that first study with the, um, the work resistance training individuals where they had a lesser adaptation in the enzymes of free radical scavenging. and, and Actually, the, one of them is for replacing or replenishing glutathione, which is very important for, for free radical quenching. Those individuals had a lessening of their stimulus. That might not fit with them having an optimized or getting everything they can out of the training. So free radicals are part of this adaptive homeostasis to be a vital tool in bodybuilding, so be careful if you're taking too much and blunting that. Again, this is so we have health versus bodybuilding. <laughs> kind of like the theme is like you want to be healthy. Don't do competitive bodybuilding, <laughs> right? Don't try to push yourself to where you're 100 pounds above where your set point or settling point would be in terms of body weight and muscle mass. Um, what we don't know is like are there more are there metabolic outliers in terms of liver clearance? We've got that one um, uh, receptor. Issue that I mentioned in the previous slide. Um, there's also the possibility that someone just might have an issue with this that we don't know about. It. I don't know. Um, so there's some other un- unknowns. Could you over over years and years have some sort of down regulation of your circadian rhythm um, to doing this for so long? Remember, we're talking about people taking doses that are way beyond what your body would normally produce. Um, but the other side of that is if we're using a replacement dose. Maybe we're just fixing an age-related dysregulation. That seems to make more sense to me is is going and do a replacement, see what happens. And if you read on the discussion boards, I looked around all over the place, and there have been people that have I've read this dozens of times probably who take took large doses and got nothing, but when they wanted help with their sleep, they took smaller doses and seemed to help. Hmm. So, you know, maybe just restoration. There's the difference between are we going to do TRT and bring myself back to a, a, a youthful level um, and reverse the uh, nit- the pathological age-related reduction, let's call it, in testosterone? Or are we going to reduce the pathological reduction in melatonin, which may be contributing to my, my aging, by repl- using a replacement dose? Or are we going to go all out, chemical warfare, and just blast <laughs> and use super physiological levels? Yeah. And so that's sort of where it's kind of the same decision that can be made in terms of PEDs, I think. So that is it. Dang, as as Scott! And that was your first was run cool. through this. I haven't, I haven't had a chance to go through the slides. What
1: do you think? Um, now, what do you think now that you've run through it?
0: I think it's pretty cool stuff. I think you know, with someone, I think there's hopefully people can make it their own mind. That's why that's why I put your call. But I think I can totally see how some people would try this, and this is what you say. And like, I got nothing. Twenty year old, twenty is like, I want to yeah. you know get better growth, lose fat they get nothing out of it because they don't have free radical stress. Yeah. They're doing good there. But things are different when you get older. And someone who's got free radical stress that's sort of in a runaway mode and they're older and they've got lots of stress in their life and maybe they eat fast food more often than they like to and they drink a little bit and they – whatever. They've got various maybe unknown pollutants that are causing free radical stress that's sort of subclinical. They're not, aw- not aware of it. Yeah. This might be something that could go in and then rectify those things and really help them feel better and move forward. In terms of the training, so that's when you know, those doses, like Dante was talking about. I mean, the thing is, too, you have to consider time frame in someone. So imagine someone's in worst case scenario, and they take a big ass dose. They've got lots of body fat. They've got their are sore all the time. Their joints are creaky. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't sleep well. Like all the things we kind of talked about, and they take a big dose, and they drop that body fat, um, and then they report that because it worked. It was a miracle worker, right? That's awesome. That doesn't mean that they can keep on taking that, like going from a twenty to a forty to a sixty to eighty milligram microgram dose of clenbuterol or what have you, mm. and they're going to have a pharmacological effect that's going to drive them down into four percent body fat that they can maintain, like the liver cane, right? Yeah. I just had to throw that out there. <laughs> you were talking about before. Um, sorry for that. I didn't. I didn't mean to disrupt that issue. But uh, so it, it may be that they're basically are getting the, this, these pharmacological effects because. Their free radical status is so out of whack, they could have got that from 10 or 15 or 20, but 60 works as well. And then they get that under control, and that just basically takes them from what was essentially a pathological situation yeah. that was associated with, with obesity or overweight and excessive visceral fat and what have you, and it gets them makes them more healthy again. It brings them back to where they were when they were in high school or college, right? Yeah. Everyone wants to put on the jeans that they wore in high school, that's their goal, right? That's a great goal for lifestyle clients. Well, one aspect of that, you know, we talked about this growth hormone was always thought of as like something that declines to be age, is the anti aging does some things in that regard, but it's got its issues too. This is another hormone that has a plethora of actions that by replacing it is something that can that can puts you back in a more youthful physiological state in terms of free radical stress, potentially. So, some people who are way out of balance, this they may need a hammer to knock them back into on that the, tra- on the, on the rail so they can go. But if they're not, you know, if you're on if your train's on the tracks and you're going the way you are. All that hammer is going to do is rattle you around and make you groggy the next day. Maybe. Yeah, right? that makes
1: sense. Dusty's running. I think he said thirty milligrams. He's running some high dose uh-huh. uh, melatonin. He probably got it from Dante. Yeah. You know, listening to right. listening oh, to yeah, his, sure. his ideas. I'll. Uh, I have to ask him. I've been wanting to ask him on the show what he thinks about it because I know he's been doing that for a little while. But. Yeah, Yeah, man, this is good. I'll look forward to everybody's feedback. And I'd be curious to know if anybody who's watching has been experimenting with this. Because I know that it's been something that's kind of been lighting up lately, high dose melatonin. I think I mentioned to you the first time I ever heard about high, high doses was um, when you and John and uh, Dr. Serrano all did a talk together in Columbus Mm -hmm. in between sessions. I listened to your session and then I had to go do some stuff, but I hung out for a few before I left in uh, Eric was talking about having people taking like 30, 40, 50 or more. And I was thinking to yeah. myself like, Holy shit. I've never heard of doses like this. This was like 2007, 2018. I think that was
0: right. Right. It's just fascinating stuff. Right. Yeah. And I, I I'll, I'll look, I'll, I'll keep on looking. Like I said, I've just, every, I just kept on digging. It's like there was a never ending rabbit hole. Right. Yeah. Um. But I, I like to, and you know, I like to see dose responses some dose response studies or dose response um, pharma, pharmacokinetics, pharmacology, everything, pharmacodynamics, pharmacokinetics to see like what's going on in terms of free radical stress there, free radical or antioxidant status in, in terms of those higher doses. Because I think if you take someone who's way out of whack, it's going to throw them back on track potentially. So what do you, I mean, I know there was a, a listserv kind of a, actually it was a giant email group that I was a part of for a while. Um. But I'm not on anymore. I think I think I got taken off because I wasn't responding. I was getting all these emails all the time. But it was one that um, Dr. Serrano had, and they were talking about that for a while. I think Victoria was on there too. She's on on that group. group. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm not on there anymore. But they talked. That that came up many times. So she can probably access some of the clinical experience that some of those practitioners had. Yeah, Um, very cool stuff. All right. So, well, let's wrap this thing up, man. This is uh, okay, cool. solid.
1: And like I said, I look forward to any feedback anybody has for us. If you guys want to hear more from Scott, definitely check out his book, byobcoach.com um, or go to Amazon. If you want to get the hardcover, be your own bodybuilding coach. it literally take you through in your entire year from planning your off season, carrying that out, going into your contest prep, literally what to pack in your bag to get on stage. How to cut water and right. everything else, it's,
0: uh, it's and, a solid and post book. contest, Yeah, And post contest, also, a lot just of us are now like, yeah. what the hell to do? now they're like, oh, what do I do now? That's yeah, just that's as important. As important. At any stage plus, yep. uh,
1: check out our sponsors, true nutrition.com. Use our code, think. Speaking to Dante, uh, they've just redid their website, so it looks pretty solid. If you haven't visited mm. it over there in a bit, in a minute, then, then check them out and use our code, think. Um, and let me know if you have any questions about any of their supplements. Uh, supplementsource.ca for our Canadians. They have awesome deals, a lot of blowouts, closeouts, label changes, stuff like that. So things change week to week. Just keep checking them out. With the cost of supplements today, uh, I would definitely be looking for a bargain, especially if I'm in Canada. Plus, uh, go to Strom Sports Nutrition. Over there in England, guys, we appreciate everybody tuning in and uh, thank you to everybody from Patreon and Scott. Thank you for putting this together, man. I feel like we got a real special treat. I mean, I know it wasn't as polished as your normal thing, but this this really felt to me like when I've gone to one of your seminars and it it, it is a very special thing. And I'm really grateful that you could share it with us.
0: Yeah, it's important. You know, I do this. If you paid for this, but I do this because it's the right thing to do to help you with this. And it's just a start. So as I get more, I'll, I'll I'll pass along. Maybe have a little melatonin corner every once in a while. I find out some more melatonin goodies.
1: Right on, guys! For another episode of Muscle Minds with Scott Stevenson, I'm Scott McNally. We will see you soon. Peace. All
0: right. All right.